Thanks be to God. A colleague of mine had an illustration that really helped me understand our passage today. She said, uh, you should imagine that you are a kid. And uh, you're a kid and you're in your happy place. So uh, whatever it was when you were a kid, uh, this is like you are doing the thing that you love. So for me, this would have been uh, after school, after I delivered my newspaper route, I'd be in the basement and I would be playing uh, Ken Griffey Jr. baseball on my Nintendo 64. Um, For the last 20 years, this video game has been pretty much the only place where the Blue Jays ever make the playoffs. Um, Anyway, I'm playing the game and and I'm in the zone. I mean, I'm in the zone. I'm, I'm locked in, you know. And, uh, and I hear my mom come to the top of the stairs. And she says, uh, have you cleaned your room yet? I need you to clean your room. But I'm in the zone, you know. I mean, I'm locked in, right? And so I'm like, Mom, like, why do I need to clean my room right now? And what's like the worst reason a mom can give? Oh, because I said so. It is the worst. What do you say to because I said so? Well, I don't want to do it because I said so, right? Like, just try that. Just try that once. See how that one goes, right? Because I said so is the worst. Because I said so just makes you angry and helpless and frustrated. And I bring this up because in our story today, Israel knows a thing or two about because I said so. All right, so for, for 430 years, they have been slaves in Egypt. So for 430 years, the only answer they ever got for why they had to do something was because I said so. Make bricks for this tower, because I said so. Make a hundred more bricks before you go home today, because I said so. Make the bricks without straw, because I said so. Throw your baby boys into the Nile, because I said so. All Israel has known about law for these 430 years is because I said so. And this is going to be a serious problem really quick because in chapter 20, God is going to give Israel his law, Ten Commandments, and a bunch of other things. And God knows that his people... Because of their history, they're going to need law in a different way. Right? Because for them, law has only been this tool of oppression and abuse and exploitation. And so, just before God says, thou shalt not have this or thou shalt not do that, before he gets to the thou shalt nots of the law, he gives a reason. It's chapter 20. The thou shalt nots start in verse 2. But this is verse 1. 
This is the reason. It says, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And maybe you think, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not a reason. That's like a, it's like a history fact. Like what's, what's going on here? I think it's kind of like this. It's like your mom asking you to clean your room. And you say, oh, like, why do I have to clean my room? And rather than say, because I said so, she says, honey, I carried you in my belly for nine months. I labored in the hospital for 36 hours. I gave birth to you. I feed you. I clothe you. When you're sick, I take care of you. When you're sad, I hold you. When you're stuck, I help you. Now, what's mom doing when she brings all that stuff up? She's, she's reminding you of something, right? She's reminding you that you guys have history. Not just any history, right? You guys have history together. You have a relationship. A relationship where she has again and again and again made decisions for your benefit. She's made decisions for your good. That's your history. I think God is kind of doing the same thing. He's not given this law because he said so and tough beans if you don't want to do it. He's saying we have history together. I mean, what a loaded sentence verse 1 is of chapter 20, hey? I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Think about that. We've been talking about that all summer long. Right, all summer long. I mean, what is all involved in getting them out of Egypt? You've got Shipra, Pua, Moses. You've got the burning bush, the ten plagues, the Red Sea. You've got manna, water, quail. God is saying, I'm not some stranger to you. I'm not some nasty tyrant who's trying to make your life difficult. We have history together. We have a relationship a relationship where I have again and again and again made decisions for your benefit, for your good. That's our history. To switch the image a little bit, God is trying to woo Israel. He's trying to get them to love him. Now, this is God we're talking about, right? So I suppose that he could just make them obey. If there were anybody who could say, because I said so, it's got to be God, right? If anybody can say, because I said so, it's got to be God. But instead, he's gone to all these lengths to save them, to prove that he's trustworthy, to prove that he has their best interest at heart. What's going on here? Well, think about a dating relationship, okay? So there's this dynamic early on in a dating relationship. 
If you find that you really like someone, you start doing research on them. Uh, nothing creepy, nothing creepy. Um, but like you make mental notes of things that she likes or stuff that makes her happy or things that just kind of please her. And you start doing more of those things. So for me, it was Indian food. So I discovered that Lauren loved Indian food, and I didn't really like spicy food, but I really liked Lauren, and so we'd get Indian food. Or you, you, know, all the, you know all the guys at the theater who are at the Nicholas Sparks movies? You guys know this Nicholas Sparks guy? He, he writes these cheesy movies, cheesy romance like The Notebook or A Walk to Remember. Anyway, I want to be clear, like, Anybody can like a cheesy romance movie, but um, sometimes, and I'm guessing maybe a lot of the time, like the guy is there at the theater because he knows that that movie will make her happy, right? And you're like, well, I mean, did, did Lauren like coerce me into liking Indian food? Like, are these women like manipulating their boyfriends into going to Nicholas Sparks movies? I'm trying not to be cynical. I don't think so. I think it's love. I think it's love. Like when you're falling in love with someone, you happily go even to a Nicholas Sparks movie. Not necessarily because you like the movie, but because you love making the other person happy. And you figured out at least one way to do it. So God has done all these things for Israel, right? You might say he's made the first move. He's figured out what they need. He's getting them out of slavery. He's feeding them. He's protecting them. Right? In, in the dating analogy, you might say, wow, I mean, he's, he's got it pretty bad for them. Right? And the question is, like, do they have it bad for him too? And the best way to tell is to ask, like, does it go both ways? So it's true that I eat Indian food now. Um, but it's also true that Lauren will watch Blue Jays games with me. Uh, she, won't, she won't play Ken Griffey Jr. baseball with me, but, but she, will, she will watch like the real games with me. That's love. Right? It goes both ways. When, when God gives his law, it's, it's a way for God to say, like, this is what pleases me. Like these, these principles of the law, like about justice and mercy and integrity and holiness, these are God's Nicholas Sparks movies. Like, this is what God loves. And so if Israel does those things, God will know the feeling is mutual. If they do these things, if they keep the law, he'll know that they love him back. I think this is the idea behind chapter 19, verse 5, where it says that Israel, if they obey God, they will be God's treasured possession. Now, when God says that in verse 5, it's a little bit weird, because uh, well, it's kind of already been obvious in Exodus that God really cares about Israel. So, like 12 times in Exodus, he's called the Israelites, he's called them my people. They're my people. 
Uh, in chapter 4, he, he describes them as his firstborn son. It's like this really special connection. It's obvious that he cares for them, but the question is, like, if they love him back, if they obey him, it's something way more special. Right? They won't just be his people. They will be his treasured possession. Because right? there's a relationship. It's like, if you don't clean your room, your mom will still love you, and she'll still feed you, and she'll still clothe you, but that relationship will not be nearly as good. It'll be missing something, right? Because it, it only goes one way. So I think that's part of what the law is here in Exodus. God sort of making the first move in the relationship by saving Israel from Egypt, or in our case, right, sending Jesus to die and rise again, right? Sending his spirit to live in us. After God makes these first moves, the question of the law is, like, will we reciprocate? Will we do it? Will we follow that law? Will we figure out what God cares about and try to care about the same things? And I'll be honest, I think, I don't know, I think a lot of times today, we Christians get, I would say, maybe a little bit lazy in the relationship. So, like, in a romantic relationship, after the dating period, and especially after marriage, you sometimes see this. You sometimes see the man or the woman uh, get a little bit lazy. So, they don't do the research anymore. Um, they don't bother sort of figuring out, like, what makes the other person happy. Because, uh, you know, they're committed now. Like, uh, if you're married, you're not really afraid she's going to leave you. And so, you know, you stop going to the Nicholas Sparks movie. Uh, you don't bother to notice that she really likes Vietnamese food now. After all, like, you're married, right? The relationship is secure, isn't it? So I think this can happen with Christians and God. I think, uh, I think this is mostly a good thing. I think we've gotten better as the church at seeing how it is that God loves us first. I think we're getting better at talking about grace. Uh, we're getting better at realizing like it's not about like keeping the law. It's not what's going to save us. But I wonder, I wonder if sometimes we lose our passion for the relationship. I wonder sometimes if we lose our passion for knowing what God cares about and doing more of that. I mean, you can see how that would happen, right? If, if keeping the law, if that's not a requirement for God to love us, like if he's already committed to us because of our faith, like what's the point in still working it out, right? I mean, after all, I mean, if you read the next few chapters, and we're going to cover that in the next few months, some of these laws, like it, they're really weird. Like they're related to cultures and times really different from ours. And trying to apply it to today, it's like really hard. And you say, well, I mean, come on. I mean, God loves us anyway. Like, why bother even getting worked up about it? I can tell you that if you're married and your marriage is like that, so if you stop trying to figure out what pleases the other person because after all she's committed to you anyway 
you probably have a really crummy marriage. Um, and there's nobody who, who sees your marriage who's going to think, boy, I mean, I hope I can get married someday. I hope I can be just like them. Nobody would say that. And, you know, that's bad enough in marriage, but I think it's even worse with God. I mean, in chapter 19, God introduces this principle about his law. And he says it's not just about showing God you love him, but in verse 6 he says it's about becoming a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's the language he uses. It's the same language in the New Testament. First Peter 2, Peter says, Christians will be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Well, what does a priest do? A, right, a kingdom of priests, royal priesthood? A priest is someone who represents God to the world. You know, when a priest walks into a room, you have this sense of something holy. You have this sense... Like, this person is different. This person knows God. This, this person cares about what God cares about. And God says that if we follow his law, we will all be priests. Not just individual isolated priests. We will be like this whole group of priests, a kingdom of priests, he says. And Peter says, that's what Exodus, that what Exodus is talking about, it's the church. We are the kingdom of priests now. We are this group of people, this kingdom, saved by Jesus, following Jesus, who by the way that we treat each other and the way that we treat our neighbors, the way we treat our classmates, the way we treat the poor, the way we run our business and work at the hospital or the school or the farm, the world interacts with us in all those places. And they think, those people are different. Those people know God. You know, sometimes I worry that if we don't really study God's word at all, like if we don't challenge each other a little bit to, to, to live it out, that we'll end up looking just the same as the world. Nothing will really be different about us at all. But the way Peter says it, he, he says, you guys, you priesthood, he says, you guys are like aliens and strangers in this world. He says, you'll, you'll sometimes be kind of weird in the world. He says, live in, he lives in such a way, live such good lives. Not to prove yourself to God. Live such good lives, not to, not to impress God or to get God to love you, but he says, live such good lives that when non-Christians see you, they would glorify God when he shows up. This idea of being a priesthood, it means we're different. There's something attractive about us to the world. Just as, uh, just as a good marriage can make someone think, boy, you know, I, I wish I was married. So for all of us, when we live this different kind of life, how good it would be if it made people say, I wonder what's different about them. I wonder who their God is. And I wonder what their God did to save them. All right, let's pray together.